Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Lord, even reading this section once again reminds me that the truth that you do, you certainly do not treat us as our sins deserve. And it reflects again what you said to Moses in Exodus 34, that you are the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You haven't changed. Your character doesn't change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are merciful And gracious and at the same time furious with sin. And you will not let the guilty go unpunished. Lord, I pray that we would take heed to the warning here. God, you know the needs that each of us have. And I pray that you would mercifully minister to them. Those who need to be comforted by your grace would be comforted. Those who need to be challenged because they take sin lightly, would be challenged and warned. Lord, those who are discouraged might be built up. Lord, in all of this, in all of our need is that we would see you. And I pray that you would help us to draw close to you, that you and you would draw close to us, that we would leave this service worshiping you, being right before you in our minds and in our hearts, walking in the Spirit, being in step with the Spirit and with the Gospel that we have learned, that the knowledge of you that we have would correspond 
to a life that follows like yours. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So it's true that almost every private school, every private college in the United States was started by Christians in order to have a decisively Christian education. But very few of those colleges, those private universities, hold to the doctrines that they were originally established under. Harvard was founded by Puritans who intended to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches. That's what its founding documents say. Yale was started in 1701 by Puritans who thought Harvard was going too liberal. Princeton in 1746 was founded by those who thought Yale was now becoming too liberal. Dartmouth's motto is a voice crying out in the wilderness from Isaiah 40 verse 3. And it reflects the school's beginnings as a frontier missionary school to the Native Americans. That's why it was founded. And then their current interpretation of this motto reflects the spiritual state of these schools today. It says on Dartmouth Chapel website, although the college is now secular, the motto is still symbolic of the college's voice of intellectual enlightenment in our beautiful natural surroundings. And this is true not just of Ivy League universities. It's true of the university I attended and of many universities across our country. Why is it that these institutions that are known for their great learning Some of the most brilliant people would go to these colleges to be built up in their faith. And yet, over time, and often not much time at all, they drift from the gospel so rapidly. I think part of it is because knowledge can actually be a significant stumbling block for Christians. It's very easy to hide a lack of spirituality obedience, a lack of obedience, that is, behind biblical truth. But if a life does not line up with the mind, the mind is actually what tends to follow. We tend to follow our desires, not just simply our convictions. If our convictions don't direct our life. So knowledge can be a stumbling block, yet knowledge is also the essence of the Christian life. John 17, 3, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now we have before us today one of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture. And it's directed at Christians. When Paul began his Epistle to the Corinthians, he says he's writing to saints. So he's writing to saints. He's writing to believers. Now, it doesn't mean everybody in the church of Corinth was saved, but that's who he's directing his his, uh, teaching to. And he gives us this warning in verse 12. 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And in order to understand the weight of this warning, and I think why we especially at Grace and Truth Bible Church, we especially need to understand this warning. In order to truly understand it, we need to be reminded of the context where this warning comes from. Now, last week, Chris did an excellent job of laying out this section of Scripture before us. And I'm not going to seek to duplicate that again, but capitalize instead on his service and just summarize what we were reminded of. In chapters 8 through 11.1, that's the section that this whole section of Scripture is all one section. So in 8 through 11.1, Paul is addressing the issue of whether Christians should eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. That's the issue he's addressing. Now the problem was that some of the Corinthians thought they should, or at least that it was okay, because they recognized that these idols weren't real. They're fake. They recognize there's only one true God. So these are just false gods. So they were freely consuming meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And others would see them. Other Christians and unbelievers, and they'd be confused by this act. And some of these Christians were participating pretty boldly too. And then justifying participating in these idolatrous sacrifices by eating the meat asserting correct doctrine. So they're justifying their participation in the sacrifices by saying there's no such thing as idols. And what they were saying was true. There aren't anything such as idols. And that's what Paul says and explains and affirms in chapter 8. But recognize that eating the meat of the sacrifice was to participate in the sacrifice. This is why what they were doing was so dangerous. Think, if you, if you recall back in our study of Exodus, in Exodus 24, God has this uh, covenant ceremony. He has the 74 elders come up and see him on the mountain. And Moses then uh, kills oxen. He sets some blood aside to, be, to sprinkle the altar. And the other he sets aside to sprinkle the people and cleanse them. And that's the confirmation of the covenant. Well, after the sprinkling takes place and they're sanctified by that blood, they eat the meat of the oxen and they have a covenant meal. Well, that eating of the covenant meal is to represent uh, participation in the sacrifice. And whenever meat was sacrificed, whenever somebody would bring their bull or lamb or goat or oxen, they would eat of the sacrifice or the high priest would eat of the sacrifice, participating in it. And so when you ate the meat... You are participating in the sacrifice. It was an act of worship. And so you had Corinthians seeming to endorse idolatry. Which was causing significant confusion. Paul explains that their primary concern should not be whether to debate whether an idol is real or not. That's not what they should be concerned about. Rather... They should think about what's the best way to adorn the gospel with their life. Does eating this meat sacrifice to an idol line up with the gospel or destroy the gospel? Does it affirm these truths or seem to rip them down? And this is why he presents himself as an example of how this principle should affect their life. He says, I let go of my rights 
in order to adorn the gospel. And this is what he illustrates in chapter 9. But again, if you recall how Paul restarted his response in chapter 8, we see that he realizes that the main stumbling block facing the Corinthians, believe it or not, is knowledge. Remember, that's what he addresses first. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. The clicker is not working, so I think I need batteries or somebody else to flip sides for me, but that might be difficult. Um, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That's 1 Corinthians 8, 1 and 2. So in chapter 9, when Paul encourages them to follow his example of giving up his rights in chapter 9, he's trying to help them see that knowledge should lead to sacrifice, not security in sin. You catch that? If you understand the gospel, it should lead to self-sacrifice, giving up your rights, not giving into your cravings. For me, in particular. And so then he turns back to the Corinthians in chapter 10. And he wants them to see that they should follow his example as well. But not just his example. They should learn not just from him, but learn from the Israelites of the past. They should think again about these Bible stories that they seem to know so well. You know, they're confident in their knowledge. So Paul says, he, he builds off this knowledge. In verse 1, 10-1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. It's a very interesting statement. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. The word here is agnoia, from where we get the term agnostic. It means to be ignorant of something. I don't want you to be ignorant of the truth. But Paul's being facetious. He's wanting to poke on their confidence in their knowledge. He's saying, if you think you know so much, you've forgotten what happened to Israel, who knew more about God than you do. What you've learned from a few sermons or Sunday school classes, they learned experientially. They saw God. They were saved miraculously by God. And yet, look what happened to them. So if you're confident in your knowledge... And that's giving you such security to sin so boldly by participating in idolatrous sacrifices. Learn from what happened to Israel, who had greater knowledge. That's his point in this section. He says in verse 2, And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now recognize this. All of them were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They all had this experience. They all had this knowledge. And he says they're baptized into Moses. And his point is drawing on their baptism. You think you are confident in the security that your baptism gives you? See, these people, the Israelites, they didn't just give a profession of faith and follow their pastor into the water and get dipped. They followed the presence of God in a cloud. They crossed through the Red Sea, freeing them 
from not just a couple years of slavery, but for 400 years of slavery. Miraculously. So, Corinthians, who had a greater baptism? Who had more confidence in the power of God? Who had a greater knowledge of God? And yet, what happened to them? He then moves from baptism to the Lord's table. And all ate the same spiritual food. They had food too. Just like you partake of the Lord's Supper, the wine, the bread. They had manna. God provided for them manna miraculously. Day after day after day. God provided them spiritual drink. This is a reference to the water that miraculously came out of the rock. God produced water from a rock to quench their thirst. And yet what happened? They fell away. He then says that this rock was Christ. Now that might be confusing. He doesn't mean that there was some giant spiritual rolling stone kind of following them around in the wilderness. That's not his point. His point is that Christ was constantly with them, constantly providing for them, just like he's constantly providing for us. We have that promise in Matthew 28, right? And lo, I am with you always. It's a great comfort for the Christian as we seek to advance his kingdom in this life. He's with us. He was with Israel too. And this is, again, our great comfort. Remember this statement when we get to verse 13 because the two ideas are connected. They should have looked to Christ and trusted in him, and they didn't. But he was with them, providing for them. And yet, despite all this miraculous experiential knowledge, nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, God was not pleased. All of them had the same experience. Yet with a few of them, most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This statement, he's not pleased, is it's a mournful understatement. That's what one commentator said. Because only two, Caleb and Joshua, were able to actually reach the promised land. This word not pleased means to be rejected. So it's not just that God was like, ah, kind of disappointed in him. Like we might be disappointed if we get a B on a test or, you know, we don't get the raise that we want. He rejected them. That's what the word means. And he says they were overthrown in the wilderness. That's, all, that's not a very good translation for that word. He's quoting Numbers fourteen sixteen. What the word means is to stretch out or spread oneself down. Like one might lie upon a couch. The idea is they were strewn across the wilderness. They were flattened because they failed to trust God and they sinned. So he's saying, you think that because you were baptized and you partake of the Lord's Supper and you, you partake of these ordinances, you think that that makes you safe to sin? That that's what gives you security? Israel sought the same thing, and what happened to them? 
Well, why stop with Israel, though? Take King David. In Psalm 27, 4, we know this verse. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I would seek after, that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Don't you love that verse? That was his heart. The one thing he wanted was to be with God. And yet, what happened to David? When he's at the height of his success, he takes the wife of one of his generals, Uriah the Hittite, and then kills him over that infidelity to cover up the act. Or take Judas. Judas walked with Jesus Christ, heard everything Jesus said, touched Jesus, saw all the miracles. And yet he turned him in for 30 pieces of silver, abandoning him. Peter. Remember Peter? Even if I must die, I will never deny you. Even if they all else deny you, Lord, I will never deny you. Hours later. What he did. Or consider even Saul the Pharisee. He says, Paul describes himself, I was circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Pharisee of Pharisees. In other words, he knew the, one of the most of anybody in all of Israel. He was an expert in the law. You couldn't get much greater than Saul. And yet, how, what, what, where did that knowledge lead him? As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. But then he goes on to say in that same passage, but whatever gain I had, think about all that he had gained, all of that knowledge, all of that, whatever I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Do you see the difference? He knew a lot about God. He even knew a lot about the Messiah. But he makes a great distinction. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's a great difference. The Israelites knew about God. But they didn't know God. Because that's not where they turned when things got hard. They gave in to their cravings. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, writes this. I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. This is over the gospel. He says, but it doesn't matter. He said at length, for I've known God and they haven't. Church dignitaries, church leaders. And, he's, and this man has the f- confidence to say, I know God and they don't. P- uh, Packer continues. We need, frankly, to face ourselves at this point. This is later on in the chapter. We are perhaps orthodox evangelicals. We can state the gospel clearly and we can smell unsound doctrine a mile away. If anyone asks us how men may know God, we can at once produce the right formula. 
that we come to know God through Jesus Christ, the Lord, in virtue of his cross and mediation on the basis of his word and of promise by the power of the Holy Spirit through the personal exercise of faith. See, we can articulate these truths. If somebody asks us what the gospel is, yet the gaiety, that means the joy, the goodness, the unfetteredness of spirit, which are the marks of those who have known God, are rare among us. Rarer, perhaps, than they are in some other Christian circles where, by comparison, evangelical truth is less clearly and fully known. Here, too, it would seem that the last may prove to be first and the first last. Packer's point is, again, knowing about God is very different than actually knowing God. This is Paul's point. Consider what Israel knew, but also consider their failures. Because he says in verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. Again, for us. That we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul says these stories were written down that we, New Covenant believers, would learn from them. Not so that we would look down our noses and go, man, how stupid could they be? But that we would recognize, if that could happen to Israel, and they had that experience of God, what could happen to me? They're not... Simply cool stories for us to learn so that we could get an A in synagogue. Because if we simply learn these stories without recognizing that they're a warning to us, not just stories that we can get you know, a better knowledge of God, like they're warnings to us. Do you read the Old Testament recognizing that's a warning to you? As Christian, it's a warning to you. Not just something to make you feel better that you're not Israel. See, even if we can faithfully recount them to another person, explain the point, if we don't recognize this is a warning to us, we've misunderstood the point. We're missing our own hearts. And we're just puffing up our heads. So what is the lesson that we're supposed to learn? Well, Paul tells us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Well, what does it mean to desire evil? Well, if you think about it, think about all the various failures of Israel in the wilderness. What drove them to each of these sins was simply their sinful desires. It's their desires. They thirsted. And so they demanded God provide them with water. They hungered. And so they grumbled about having meat. They grumbled about the manna. And they wanted the meat, the quail. Every single time it was they had some craving that they wanted met. And instead of waiting for God to provide it for them, looking to God to provide, they followed their desires instead. And Paul probably chooses this word because the issue at hand is with idolatrous meat. These Corinthians are desiring meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And in Numbers 11, it says the Israelites craved meat rather than this manna. And so God gave them meat. But along with this meat that he provided for them came a great plague as well. And in fact, 
in that passage, these, it says, when these cravers were buried, they called the place the graves of craving. It's, it's to communicate something. This is what happened when you listen to your cravings rather than trust God. When you follow your desires rather than looking to your Lord, trusting he will provide for you. But Paul still keeps this term broad and applies it to all sorts of sinful desiring. Thirsting, hunger, sex, proof of the presence of God. They wanted relief from their cravings, but they sought it from the wrong source. And so Paul lists this multitude of ways Israel desired evil. Verse 7, don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now again, this is a reference to Exodus 32, right when they broke the covenant. When Moses was, after they had seen the presence of God on the mountain, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the law. What do they do? They, They create a golden calf and they worship it. And this is when this verse is Written in verse 6, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That word play is a, has a sexual reference. So they engaged fully in this idolatrous worship. Then he says in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. So this is a reference to Numbers 25. When the Israelites uh, desired to become involved with Moabite women, which was strictly against the covenant that they had agreed to. And of course, along with this desire came the worship of Baal. And so, as the Israelite leaders are grieving over what's come over Israel and their foolishness, one of the men grabs a Midianite woman and takes him into, takes her into his tent in front of everyone. And that's when Phineas, with a zeal for the Lord, grabs a spear and runs it to, through the two of them. And that's what stops the plague that was spreading. And that's when it says, and then 23,000 fell. Not counting others who had fallen. 23,000 still died because of this rebellion. Again, don't let that just... Be a number. Those were real breathing people. 23,000. My wife was saying that's, that's probably Cornelius and Forest Grove combined. In one day. So consider how seriously God takes the sin of his people. He also points out they're testing the Lord. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This is a reference to Numbers 21. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. We deserve something better. So then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. They tested God. And they died grumbling, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So this is a reference to number 16 in the rebellion of Korah. 
What happened with Korah is he and a number of his buddies wanted to have the same sort of status as Moses. And he says, this is what Korah says, and the people spoke against God and against, oops, sorry. They says, you have gone too far for in all the congregation, all of us are holy, every one of them and the Lord's among them. Why then do you, Moses, exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Well, God's response to this arrogant presumption that they should be held as important as Moses was that he destroyed Korah and his followers by opening up the earth and swallowing them. Okay, but that's not the end of the story, because after they were destroyed by God through this swallowing up. People come to Moses and complain that that shouldn't have happened. They were angry with God and angry with Moses that God destroyed the followers of Korah. So God caused a plague to come upon them and nearly 15,000 died, not counting those who were killed in Korah's rebellion. That's when they were destroyed by the destroyer, when they grumbled about God's judgment. Now notice that with each of these references, Paul delineates a consequence to the sin. Every time they sinned, there was a consequence. Well, what's his point? Sin has horrific consequences. Knowledge should quench sin. If it doesn't, that sin will lead to destruction. Your knowledge of the gospel should lead to repentance from sin, avoiding sin, not lead to security in your sin. Don't mess with sin. Even if you can articulate the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints better than Paul. Even if you understand it that well, don't mess with sin. It will destroy you. That's his point. Verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as an example, but were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. See, again, this is for us, new covenant believers, to learn from, to be warned by, not that we can look down our noses at them. And notice, Paul applies it to himself as well. Remember what he said in verse 9, or chapter 9? I buffet my body, I make it my slave. Paul did not doubt his salvation, but he disciplined himself in every way possible that he would not become disqualified. I dare say he understood the gospel, but he did not take sin lightly. Neither should we. Israel serves as a warning to us. Let's consider consider verses 12 through 13. Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Literally, this means the one who presumes to stand. The one who thinks he's okay. He's secure. I got this. I know the gospel. I know that once I'm saved, I'm always saved. God will not reject me. That's true. That's a true statement. But it's that person who needs to watch out. That's literally what take heed lest he fall means. The, the word is blepo. 
in the imperative, watch out. Watch out that you might not fall. So the one who thinks they're doing swimmingly is the one who needs to watch out. Remember Peter. Lord, even if they all deny you, I would never deny you. He did. Paul wants the knowledgeable Corinthians to recognize the real danger they're up against. See, knowledge will not keep them spiritually secure. Knowledge is not enough. It's not bad. It's not a problem, but it's not enough. They need to keep themselves from evil. They need to guard their hearts. Now, Paul recognizes that what he's telling them could be terrifying. And in fact, I think if we get it, it should be terrifying to us. Because if they could fall away, good night. If Peter could fall away, if Judas could fall away, what keeps us from falling away? And as I prepared this message, I I can list for you so many of my friends who have walked away from the gospel People that I've spent hours praying with that were part of the same education that I had. One of my seminary professors was exposed for adultery while I was taking his class. The man knew far more theology than I did. And yet he fell. What makes it what what keeps us from falling? Is it the gospel and knowledge of God won't keep them safe, what hope do they have? What hope do we have? Well, Paul transitions here to one of the most encouraging promises in all of Scripture. So one of the sturdest warnings, then one of the most encouraging promises. And this, if you grasp it, is the antidote to sinful desires. And it could be summed up in three words. God is faithful. You want to know how not to give in to sinful cravings? This is it. Believe it. Not just in your mind. Believe it. God is faithful. It says in verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So remember again in Psalm 27, when David was tempted to despair, he was declaring in his misery that he felt completely alone, completely rejected, forsaken. He concludes that psalm with this exhortation. It's the same point Paul's making. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That was David's answer to his desperation. Wait for the Lord. And this is Paul's point as well. It's the antidote to the poison of spiritual pride. It's the antidote for temptation. When we're being tempted, what's going on is our faith is being tested. Do you really believe God will provide for you? I mean, think about Jesus's temptation in the wilderness. When Satan tempted him, he didn't give in to Satan's twisting of Scripture. He resisted. When Israel was being tempted in the wilderness to trust in other things, they were being 
tempted by their cravings to not trust God. To follow their desires, to give in to their desires rather than to believe God would provide for them. He would give them manna. He would give them meat when they needed it. He would give them water when they needed it. But they didn't trust God. And they gave in to their cravings and that's what led to their destruction. Genuine trust, again, it's not, it's not just intellectual. It's your choices. You reflect what you truly believe by the choices that you make. Does your understanding, does your doctrine lead you to greater and greater Christ-likeness, less and less sin, or does it give you more and more security in sin? How does your doctrine and knowledge affect your choices? Does it give you, again, courage to satisfy your fleshly desires? Or does it lead you to sacrifice those same desires? Again, consider the example of Paul. I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I discipline my body. Keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So as your knowledge of God has grown since you've become a believer, has it led to greater trust and dependence upon God? Or greater confidence in your knowledge? Has your knowledge led to greater trust? Or just more knowledge? He says, take heed. Watch out. Examine your life. Are you actually growing spiritually or simply intellectually? Can you say that you truly know Christ? Or just know about Christ? Is He everything to you? Can can you actually say you would consider everything as rubbish compared to knowing Him? If what you know is not leading you towards greater intimacy with Christ, greater love for others, the problem is not knowledge. The problem is your heart. Sinful cravings. So what's the solution? Flee craving. Flee it. Discipline your body like Paul. But most importantly, draw near to God. And wait upon the Lord. Recognize God will provide you. That's Paul's point. He will give you a way of escape. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can endure. And I think all of us, if you're a believer, you've experienced this. I experience this every week when I'm tempted. So I, and it goes without saying. If you're a Christian, you've experienced how God, and we don't always, sometimes we ignore those ways of escape and we just give in to our cravings. We should be very afraid when we do that. Draw near to God. And I think James is really helpful here. And so does this exhortation that he gives line up? I'll just read it. Line up with your life. Does his exhortation line up with your life? James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you.
Do you see that? Resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So you recognize this is practical. This is do something. This isn't just believe the gospel. Remind yourself of the forgiveness of Christ. And that's not wrong. Do that, but don't just do that. Draw near to God. Resist the devil. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched. Mourn and weep. It's not wrong to mourn and weep over your sin. You should. If you're not mourning and weeping over your sin, you don't understand your sin. You don't understand what it's doing to you or anyone else. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be torn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So there's great hope here. There's great confidence. This is, Paul's not telling the Corinthians this to get them to despair. He's, but he's, he's, not, he's not messing around. It's a real warning. Watch out. Don't, don't think your knowledge is going to keep you safe. Because it didn't keep the Israelites safe. But at the same time, recognize there is hope. In fact, perfect hope. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. God is faithful. Believe that. He's faithful. Knowledge is not the problem. As you approach the word, study with an attitude of humility. I think this is one practical application. Because I think it's really easy to increase in our understanding of knowledge. We can come and listen to a sermon or in our own quiet times, read the word. And if you're recognizing the word isn't changing your affections and you're not becoming less resistant or more resistant to sin. That doesn't mean stop reading the Bible, but approach it differently. Make the end not just simply learning this information, but go to God with an attitude of humility, recognizing, God, I need your help. Pray about your need. Pray for understanding. Pray that God would help you repent. And as you approach sermons... Pray before the sermon. Pray during the sermon. Pray after the sermon. God, change me. I don't want to be like Israel. I want to finish the race. And I want to, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I believe you will cause me to stand. And it's because I believe that. God, help me. Help me. So let's pray. God, help us. Increase our knowledge. Increase our understanding, but increase our affections for you. And turn away our desires from this world. Because, God, it is very easy to think that we stand because of what we know. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in all of our hearts, that none of us would become just another statistic of a Christian who once knew the truth and yet abandoned it because we wanted academic success or an illicit relationship or just freedom from suffering. 
pray that you would draw near to all of us, not just now, but in our time with you during the week. And that you would allow, you would, you would allow our mind to, to go beyond just learning and to also have our affections changed. That we would truly love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and learn to love one another and strangers even as you have loved us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.